Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the As A Woman podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am so excited to be sharing one of my favorite topics with you today. We are going to be talking about tracking ovulation and specifically ovulation predictor tests. These tests I have an interest in. As many of you know, I'm a fertility doctor, and when we do our fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility, we have to do three years of fellowship training, and that's after four years of OBGYN. And in that three years, a year and a half is research. So any fertility doctor that you see walking around who went to an REI fellowship actually did a significant amount of research. That's really important for two reasons. One is because this field changes all of the time. In a field that constantly changes, you have to understand how to evaluate studies that come out. Are they good? Are they bad? What can you take from this? How can you change your practice? What should you not be doing? And we also have to have a fine, fine balance of understanding that sometimes the field moves faster than the evidence and being able to critically assess what is out there. Well, that was all very long-winded to say that I did all of my fellowship research on natural fertility, and that's why I have such an interest in fecundability. If you're new here, welcome. Fecundability is the chance of getting pregnant per month, the probability of pregnancy per month. And we consider that one of the most finite markers when looking at fertility studies, because the reality is, what's your endpoint? Is it a positive pregnancy test? Is it a clinical pregnancy, meaning seeing a gestational sac or fetus inside the uterus? Is it a heartbeat? Is it getting to term? Is it having a baby? There's just different outcomes that studies use. So fecundability, one menstrual cycle, one positive pregnancy test. So a very finite evaluation. Doesn't take into account miscarriage, right? So it's different. But all of my fellowship research was on fecundability and then looking at what influences it and how you track it. So different fertility awareness methods, which are tracking methods for ovulation, 
looking at environmental chemicals and toxins and what influences your fertility and then looking at different things, especially understanding the luteal phase and the phases of the cycle. So talking about tracking your ovulation is something that I've done a lot of personal research on, fellowship research, published research. So I love this. So when we talk about tracking your cycle, you always have to understand your cycle. You have to understand what it means when we talk about fertility awareness methods to understand what will work for you. And then I'm going to dive into one of my personal favorites, which is ovulation predictor kits or OPKs. When it comes to your cycle, the first thing to understand is that if you have irregular cycles, many of these methods are going to be hard. Now you might tell me, I need them more than ever because I have irregular cycles and I hear you, but we have to understand that utilizing them and using them appropriately and understanding when they're not going to work is going to be really empowering information because otherwise it will be very frustrating. When you look at the most commonly used types of fertility awareness methods, we are going to be talking about OPKs, ovulation predictor kits. We are going to be talking about cervical mucus monitoring or CMM, and we're going to be talking about basal body temperature or BBT. Now there's also the calendar method, which is what your apps are using as well. And this number one, we'll start here. Calendar method. Easiest, easiest, especially now, because there's so many different apps that try to calculate your fertile window and they base it off of the average person. Number one, you're not the average person. Number two, it is just a math equation. It is not fancy. Now the app versus the pen and paper, what it does is it uses the average person and then it starts to modify the data clinically by what you tell it, the data you're giving it. And there have been a lot of studies that look at these apps and the data that they're giving you to try to decide if it's accurate or not. And starting here, importantly, two studies worth noting. One was published back in 2018, and it was looking at almost 1,000 volunteers, and it was tracking their cycles by getting urine every day. So they were checking for when the LH surge happened. And then they were watching with the app, telling what the app said. And in the study, cycle tracking apps only predicted ovulation day 21% of the time meaning standard old calendar method was even better because you had to apply it to an individual person than what the apps did. This is in support of a study in 2016, which was published in the Green Journal, showing that looking at 20 websites and 33 apps, only one website and three apps actually predicted the accurate fertile window. Okay, so they're not great in actively predicting the accurate fertile window, or the day of ovulation. That being said, they are often better than nothing, and I think that's really important. But there's a difference between just seeing what your app is telling you and actually tracking your cycle with a method that will actually predict ovulation. And that's my point number one. The app is a standardized formula, modifies over time. Other methods of fertility awareness, such as OPK, cervical mucus, BBT, are superior. Now, when you look at the app in general, does it help? Because all the studies I've mentioned previously, we're talking about predicting ovulation. Did it pick the right day? And I've mentioned the calendar method. So if we just want to understand this before I talk about the study that tells us if the apps help us get pregnant, what an app does is it takes the standard calendar method fertile days method. There's a few different ones, but the idea here is 
your luteal phase is set in length to 14 days. So whatever your cycle day length is, if I subtract it by 14 days, I'm going to get the day of ovulation. If we wind back, we remember that what happens is when you start your period, you have a small group of follicles that have all been released from that vault in the ovary that are all ready to grow and develop. These follicles respond to FSH from the brain. So while you're having your period, FSH is going to be released and that FSH is going to stimulate an egg to start growing. As that egg grows, the follicle enlarges and it makes estrogen. Now, estrogen makes you feel happy. This is the first part of the cycle. Estrogen gets your bleeding to stop. Estrogen is predominant in your follicular phase. Remember that the follicular phase is estrogen dominant. So that's always a big pet peeve of mine when people say they're estrogen dominant because that's a natural part of half of your life if you're on cycles. So you're estrogen dominant, estrogen's the main hormone, you're growing an egg, you're in your follicular phase, you're feeling great. This is when you have your most energy, concentration, highest libido. Boom. This follicle is big. The egg is now mature and that egg is now making enough estrogen for the brain to be aware. Remember that the brain does not know what exactly is happening inside the ovary. It's not a television. It is not on FaceTime. They are old school friends who are on a phone. So it does not know what is going on until you start to have high enough estrogen level. So when your estrogen has been 200 picograms for over 50 hours, now the brain says, hey, we have a mature egg let's get this show on the road. And it sends out that LH surge. And that LH surge is what allows you to ovulate. That LH surge induces that follicle to open up or release the egg. The follicle that released that egg now reforms. It reseals. This is crazy. Reseals and becomes a different type of cyst, right? Because a follicle is a cyst. A cyst is just a fluid-filled structure, and now you have a corpus luteum. And the corpus luteum is what the follicle becomes after it ovulates. The corpus luteum is now making progesterone. And it actually makes other things too, but progesterone is its bread and butter, and it's making progesterone, and that progesterone is going to open and close the implantation window. So we know it's essential to have progesterone production from the corpus luteum in order to get pregnant. And if you're not pregnant, that corpus luteum dies, progesterone drops, the brain senses this and starts to send out FSH to get a new group of eggs to grow. And when progesterone drops, the uterine lining sheds and you're on your period. So the corpus luteum dies. It cannot live on stimulated by the brain forever. So in the luteal phase, the corpus luteum is stimulated by LH pulses, pulses from the pituitary gland. This is because that's how the hypothalamus talks to the pituitary gland in GnRH pulses, gonadotropin-releasing hormone pulses. I think about it as Morse code. So it's Morse coding, do-do-do-do-do, we're in our luteal phase, and it's sending out these pulses of LH. And the corpus luteum responds to that. When it gets a pulse, it sends out progesterone. Then progesterone starts to drop, and then there's another pulse, and it sends out more. And so in the luteal phase, it is very normal and expected to have a rise and a fall of progesterone. So there's no progesterone level that's telling you that you have a good luteal phase. That's another 
thing that I see all the time when people who are not fertility doctors try talking about this topic. Oh, your progesterone's too low in the luteal phase. No, no, it fluctuates and we know that. As long as it's higher than three, three nanograms per ml is telling us that you ovulated. Anything between three and 40 plus are very normal, just depending on when you draw the blood in relation to the LH surge. And it's going to go up and down this entire time. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy, and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No mind shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. If you get pregnant, that pregnancy comes in and that pregnancy is making HCG. HCG is human chorionic gonadotropin. And HCG is now being secreted at a constant and exponential rise. So what happens is the egg is released. The egg is released after the LH surge. You have an LH surge and that egg is released approximately 36 hours afterward. From that moment, you have 24 hours to fertilize the egg. 24, that's it. Then it's done. The egg is fertilized inside the fallopian tube. So it's not that it's going to be outside your body after that time. It's just unable to be fertilized. So the egg is released, the fallopian tube snatches it up, you now have 24 hours to get that thing fertilized, otherwise it's not going to happen. If it does get fertilized, sperm is there, sperm fertilizes the egg, you have early embryonic growth happens inside the fallopian tube. That embryo goes from 1 to 2 to 4 to 8 to 16 to 32, You you get the gist. By the time it reaches your uterus five days later, it's now over 300 cells. So it is like fast track in this. 
when it gets inside that uterus, it now has only a couple days to implant. And that's because of that progesterone timing. And if it does, so if it gets in there and now it's implanting, now you're going to have that HCG production from the embryo starting to get into that maternal blood circulation. And now you're going to see a constant stimulus of the corpus luteum. The corpus luteum is stimulated to make progesterone by two things, LH from the brain, HCG from the pregnancy. So if you get pregnant, the pregnancy comes in, it makes HCG, that stimulates progesterone. Another thing I hear people say all the time that I just want to mention really quickly is that somebody will say, I had low progesterone and it caused my miscarriage. And I just want to explain this for a minute. HCG is supposed to double approximately every 48 hours. So boom, it's rising very fast. And so you're supposed to get this constant increasing production of progesterone. HCG does not rise like that in pregnancies that are not going well. Pregnancies that are tubal, have a bad implantation, or are genetically abnormal, or the cells are just metabolically not doing the right thing. So if HCG is not rising on that exponential fashion, you're not getting a constant progesterone production and your progesterone will be low because the corpus luteum is now not working anymore. It only lives 14 days. So if that HCG is not stimulating enough progesterone production from the corpus luteum, you are going to have a low progesterone and you are going to miscarry. And this is how the body is made so that the human body does not carry pregnancies for babies that do not have a potential for life. We only give birth a limited number of times in our life, very different than other species of animals. So if you have a low progesterone, that is telling us that often the pregnancy is not doing what it needs to do. And your OBGYNs check progesterone with HCG because there are studies looking at appropriate values of progesterone in pregnancy and helping stratify outcome. So is this likely to be an ectopic pregnancy? Is this likely to be an intrauterine pregnancy? So it's a data point that's helpful to them. But just to clear up, it's really a communication mechanism as all hormones are, but this one is between the pregnancy and your body to tell you if it's going good or not. Okay, so the other pathway, the corpus luteum lives for 14 days and then it dies. When the corpus luteum dies, your progesterone drops. And that drop in progesterone, as we said before, tells your body this cycle did not result in a pregnancy. So if we think about what the calendar method is, the calendar method is saying, hey, there are 14 days that that corpus luteum is going to live for. It is going to take the average cycle length, which is 28 days, which is actually not the average cycle length for most people. It's just mathematically nice. But if you pop open your calendar, it is going to have the default formula, say 28 minus 14 equals day of ovulation, and the fertile window is five days ending on the day of ovulation. Why is the fertile window five days? Because sperm can live inside the female reproductive tract for up to five days. So knowing the fertile window, knowing the time period before you ovulate is helpful because if you can have sex on one of those days and have some sperm hanging out ready for that egg, because our very valuable, precious egg only is living for 24 hours, we need to have that sperm ready or coming right away. 
We don't want it coming later. So we want you to have intercourse before and the day of your ovulation, not later, because later doesn't do us any good. So most cycle tracking apps or websites actually don't tell us the calculator they used. So in this article that was comparing predicting the days of ovulation to other types of calendar method, what they looked at is some of the other methods. So there's the standard days, which just says days 18 to 19 of your cycle are the most fertile days. So standard days, easiest. If you have cycles between 24 to 35 days, it says, hey, days 18 to 19, your fertile days are going to be in there. Have sex those days or every other day in that window, you're good. Rhythm method predicts the formula based on data from six cycles. So you count how long your cycle is for six times. So tracking for six months is your cycle 28, 31, 30, 29, 32. Average those together, add them all up, divide by six. Then you take that number minus 18. That's the start of your fertile window. That number minus 11, that's the end of your fertile window. So that is what they call the rhythm method. And then there's this simple calendar method. This is you take that average cycle length minus 14, minus 15, and it's giving you the day before and the day you ovulate as your two most fertile days. So if you have 30-day cycles and you're going to subtract 14 and 15, it's now going to tell you that day 15 and 16 are your most fertile days. And for everybody, this is the day before and the day of ovulation. So again, the day before and the day of ovulation because that egg only lives 24 hours and sperm lives longer. These are all methods that you can do without an app by tracking your own cycles. You need no money. You don't have to pay for a subscription. None of that. Now, the apps use their other method. It is supposed to be like that. It is supposed to be smarter because if your cycles vary, it is going to put in more information. All right, but in this study, looking at the day of ovulation, apps 21% of the time predicted the right day. The standard days method predicted ovulation 70%, where the method 89%. So they overall, I'm not convinced apps are better. However, there are a lot of free ones and it can be easy and can give you notifications and it's not like it's worthless. So the important thing to realize is that apps often are helping you with your fertile window, even if they're quite bad at predicting ovulation. And the reason why I can say that is if we look at a study which was published in Human Reproduction, which is a very good journal in 2020, this study is fecundability in relation to use of mobile computing apps to track the menstrual cycle. So they were saying, hey, well, okay, maybe they do or don't predict ovulation well, but can they help you get pregnant, right? Like that's what we're really wanting. Or at least that's what most of my patients are wanting. I think understanding your period is very important. You've heard me say your menstrual cycle is a vital sign, but if we're talking about, can this help me get pregnant? So this study was using what's called the Presto data set. This is the pregnancy study online. It is a prospective cohort. I like prospective cohorts are always better than retrospective. When we look at study design, most fecundability studies are never going to be RCTs, randomized controlled trials. So again, when we talk about looking at study, we have to know what's a good and bad. You can't get population data from an RCT. It's always a cohort. And we like prospective ones better. So women aged 21 to 45 who are trying to conceive, who are not using contraception, and who are not using any fertility treatment, at least when they entered the study. So 
they restricted down this cohort. And the nice thing about some of these big prospective cohorts is they can get large. But this analysis was of 8,363 women who were trying to conceive for not more than six months, meaning you don't have infertility when you're looking at this. So 72% were using an app, at least one at baseline. So just using an app, using an app to try to get pregnant, to track your cycles, to tell you when your fertile window was, had a 20% increase in getting pregnant. I like it. No difference between the apps. There were many apps. They even designated five as more effective. Clue, Fertility Friend, Glow, Kendara, Ovia. There was no difference in those and other ones is the take home. Any fertility app increased it by 20%. Now, any fertility app and another method of fertility awareness, BBT, OPK, cervical mucus, those two together increased your chance of getting pregnant by 30%. So, a 20% increase or a 30% increase. So if you're trying to get pregnant, you want to be super efficient. You are going to use something to track your cycles. Personally, I think it's because one, pop-up notifications of your fertile window, if you turn those on. Two, many people aren't aware of this fertile window, five days ending on day of ovulation. Oh, I can have sex before and that can help me get pregnant. And number three, just simply, it can be hard to remember when your period is unless you mark it down. The reason why the five were mentioned as selected is because they also, at least at the time of the study, allow you to track the presence of those other fertility awareness methods. So did you get an LH surge today? Did you have type 4 cervical mucus? And mark those things. Now, what it did with that data, I'm not sure, but it at least allowed you as the participant to track it, which also meant you might be more likely to do those things if your app says, what was your cervical mucus today? Versus being like, what is cervical mucus? And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited that summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside, enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. So looking at the data, it also showed that in women who had subfertility. So they did a sensitivity analysis of people who'd been trying longer to look at if anything was better. And in those people, these apps plus a fertility awareness method was superior to other options for apps. So probably if you're having a hard time getting pregnant, using an app and another method of fertility awareness can be helpful. Understanding the limitations with an app is very important. I also think 
If you're a good tracker and pen and paper or your Google calendar, that's all good too. As long as you're tracking your cycle, that's where I think the magic with an app comes. Now, what I really want to talk about is the other methods of ovulation tracking. OPKs are one of my favorites because I feel like it's very easy and it's very objective and not subjective, meaning it's going to give you the result versus you having to try to say, what is this? And that's the case sometimes for some people with cervical mucus. So an OPK is an ovulation predictor test. It is a test where you urinate and it is detecting LH in your urine. LH is not released in the urine, friends. LH is a hormone released from the brain. Hormones go into the bloodstream. It then has to get filtered through your kidneys and into your urine. So one thing that I hate is that these package inserts will tell you to test with first morning urine. Where does not first morning urine people, friends? Because it is presuming you're sleeping till nine and you're going to have a nice concentrated urine sample. I'll sleep till nine. Most of my clients don't either. We get up really early. We have busy lives. So if LH is released from the brain in the early morning hours, it may not be in your urine yet if you're checking that test or at six or seven in the morning. So I always recommend you take your OPK between 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Take it to work. Go to the bathroom in the middle of the day. Take it then. Yes, one of the limitations with taking it in the midday can be if your urine is too dilute. Just know that you're going to take it and try to make sure that you don't have too dilute of urine at that time. But 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. is by far the best time. It's checking the LH surge, meaning you need to know when it turns positive. If you haven't taken an OPK and then suddenly on day 18 of your cycle, you take one and it's positive, it doesn't mean anything, friends, because we already know LH is going to pulse throughout the entire luteal phase, up and down. You can get constant positives, ups and downs of positives. We need to know when was it negative and when did it turn positive because there was not LH in our follicular phase in any significant amount. And then the first time it starts rising is our real LH surge. And that's what we want to know. That is why if you're going to use OPKs as a predictive method, you need to start them earlier. So if you think you ovulate on cycle day 14 or 15, based on your simple calendar method, average cycle length minus 14 days. Okay. Well then we want to start this like five or so days ahead of time. So start on day nine or 10, and you're going to take an OPK one time per day between 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. It should read negative, 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 positive. Boom, now it's positive. The positive is the day of the LH surge, not the day you're ovulating, not the day you're ovulating, the day before you're ovulating, okay? But it and the next day, the day of ovulation, those two days are the most fertile days. Now, there's a lot of fancy OPKs, and it can often be harder to find easy ones. Cheapest easy ones are lines. If you're using the line test, it doesn't say positive, negative. What it's doing is going to tell you when the line is as dark or darker than the control line, then that counts. So you'll notice the line is fainter because your body doesn't have no LH. It just has a little. But when it gets dark or darker, then that's going to count as the surge. If you use my favorite, just two choices, positive, negative, digital test, that's my favorite if you can find it. 
However, a lot of them like to check and tell you the fertile window, and it's actually not checking LH. I think this is important. In the OPKs that are detecting the fertile window, they're actually using an estradiol assay. And so as your estrogen is rising, it is telling you fertile window. And they usually have a high, then a peak, and the peak is the actual LH surge. The fertile window is, as it says, time to have sex. Now, a couple OPK points that I wish everybody knew. One, you don't need to take them twice a day. Two, you do not need to be using them after you get the positive. Please stop. It's going to be positive throughout your luteal phase. You're wasting your money. You are causing emotional stress by what does this mean? If it's negative, let it go. Also, they are not going to be very helpful for people with PCOS, at least not as a whole. It might for you as an individual, but many people with PCOS have elevated LH levels at baseline that are very high and will set off OPKs and give false positives. Also can have high baseline estrogens, causing that high window to just live on and on and on and not really getting a true peak. They can just be confusing. The more irregular your cycles are or the higher your LH is, if you have gotten that tested, then this might be something that's just frustrating. So if I am helping a PCOS patient get pregnant with ovulation induction, I don't use OPKs for tracking. I don't find them helpful. Maybe for you, if they've worked for you in the past, some people, yes, but on a group, a population group, it's just frustrating. So that's not my favorite thing. And I think just be aware if you are a PCO and you get a lot of weird results, it's not you as a test. But personally, the reason why I love OPKs is because they are going to give you the most usable data in the moment. It's positive. And now I know the two days, the top days to have sex, this day when it's positive and then the next day. Another important point is you need to take it around the same time every day. So if you take it at 8 a.m. one day, then 8 p.m. the next, you could miss your surge. So don't do that. Pick a time where you can commit and do it at that time. The other methods are BBT and cervical mucus. Cervical mucus monitoring is where you are actually looking for the detection of type 4 cervical mucus. And this type 4 is from putting your fingers inside. So not just what's coming out, what you can find at the vulvar entrance, but to put two fingers inside your vagina, grab cervical mucus, cervix, cervix is high, pull it out, stretch it. Type 4 is stretchy like an egg white. You can Google it and see a picture, my friends. That is the day of ovulation. You really only have typically one day, maybe two, but it's coming from those peak, peak, peak estrogen levels. So when you get type 4 cervical mucus, that's your day of ovulation. That's the day. Now, cervical mucus is free. It's not used commonly, but when it is used, studies have shown it does improve your chance of getting pregnant. Just like OPKs, studies have shown using them increases your chance of getting pregnant. BBT is another one. I think this is the hardest one. It has notably gotten easier with wearables. So, you know, your watch or a ring or other things that can track your temp while you're sleeping. Old school days, people had to use a very special type of thermometer and they had to check it in their bed right before they got out of bed, before they had water. And so many different things do impact your body temp. If you're sick that month, mm, not going to happen. But using BBT, you have to use it every day. It has to be very accurate. When you see your temperature rise by one half to one degree Fahrenheit, and it's been risen for three days, you can know you ovulated 
the day before that first temp rise. So it is very helpful retrospectively to say, yes, I did ovulate, maybe to confirm your ovulation. And if you have very regular cycles, it can be helpful to predict in the future. So if you're always seeing a temp rise the same time, the same day in your cycle, then you're going to know. It is helpful, a little bit more cumbersome, and it's after the fact. So if your temp rose late or early, it's done, right? If you didn't have intercourse, then that ship has sailed. But again, used right, very helpful. So another study, fecundability. Remember fecundability, probability of pregnancy per cycle. Fecundability in relation to the use of fertility awareness indicators in a North American preconception cohort study published in FNS, which is Fertility and Sterility in 2019. This is your neighborhood REI's favorite journal. We love FNS. And this study senior author is Lauren Wise, and she's fantastic. So this is another prospective cohort study done very well. And what this was showing us is that using any fertility indicator, right? So any of these, they looked at OPK, BBT, cervical mucus. They also looked at charting, charting cycles or counting days as a method. And they looked at cervical position. Any of them had a higher chance of getting pregnant. So you had an increased probability of getting pregnant for any of them. When they looked at combinations. So again, in a prospective cohort, you're not modifying behavior. You're just following behavior to see what happens. So in people who used charting cycle days, cervical fluid, and OPK, so OPK, cervical mucus monitoring, and charting, that group had the highest chance, a 48% increased probability of pregnancy. So if you want to get pregnant in the fastest way, Having the most data about your cycle is 100% going to be very, very useful. All right, so if you're trying to get pregnant and track your cycle, or even if you're not trying to get pregnant, but you want to understand your cycle better, you can track your cycle with a calendar, your own calendar. You don't even need an app. I told you the formula to do so. You can take your simple calendar method, say, okay, Here's my average cycle length. I'm going to subtract 14. That should be the day I ovulate. Subtract 15. That should be the day before. You're trying to get pregnant. Those are the two most fertile days. And if you combine that with your free option of cervical mucus monitoring, without spending any money, you should be able to detect your ovulation day. And if you realize your periods are irregular, not coming at the same time, you're not getting type 4 cervical mucus, and there's not a reason why, Cervical mucus is also dependent on dehydration, taking different decongestants, drinking a lot of alcohol. Those things can also impact it too. But if you're getting consistent results, you now know you're ovulating. You have a good grasp on your cycle. If your cycle length is normal, if you're having a consistent regular cycle, there is such thing as irregularly regular, meaning you don't skip full months, but it is not coming at a nice consistent interval. So 23 days, then 34 days, then 27 days, then 36 days. That's too much variation. And we should at least make sure we don't have an issue, thyroid, prolactin, PCOS, something happening. Now, if you're looking at your cycle and you're seeing that your luteal phase is short, we've said over and over the standard luteal phase is 14 days. Most of us accept 12 to 14 without blinking an eye. 11 is pretty normal, but on the low end, but 10 and less is definitely a short luteal phase. Short luteal phase 
has not been shown to decrease your chance of pregnancy. However, it has been shown to be reflective of an improper ovulation, ovulatory dysfunction. We know this. If you're not making a great follicle, maybe you don't have a great corpus luteum. Maybe you don't have enough progesterone produced from the corpus luteum. Maybe you can't live as long. Some people give progesterone supplementation to these people. I'm a believer in ovulation induction from the jump, but everybody's different. But if your luteal length is 10 or less, I would bring that up. If you have spotting throughout the entire luteal length, not normal, or a significant amount every cycle before ovulation, a day or so of spotting is fine. Implantation spotting tends to be a little bit different, pinker than period spotting. But if you're having luteal spotting consistently, get that evaluated. It could be a luteal phase issue. It could also be a structural issue like a polyp or something else. But if you're wanting to track your cycles, you should know that apps are not always the most reliable. So I would at least compare that with what I'm getting from my simple calendar method or from other methods of fertility awareness as well. Remember that sperm lives for five days. So your goal is to have intercourse on the days before you're ovulating and the day of ovulation. If I'm going to pick two days for you to go have intercourse, it's going to be the day before and the day you ovulate. So knowing when those days are, that's the best. Having sex every other day is fine, especially if you're using the day 8 to 19 method, just not going to really stress about it. If you're having sex every day, you're getting sperm there. If you are everyday sex people and you want to be pregnant, please don't have less sex. I know I and other people say every other day because we don't want to burn out people who are not used to having everyday sex because yes, that's a thing. But if you're everyday sex people, more intercourse equals a higher chance of pregnancy, period, the end. More intercourse in the fertile window, higher chance of pregnancy. If you have more sex, more sperm is ultimately going to be dispersed at various times. Do not save up for the day of ovulation because what if you miss it? That's very different if you're doing fertility treatments or treating something. This is for naturally trying to get pregnant, friends. All right, friends. Well, I'm going to answer a few of your top fertility-related questions. I hope that helped you understand a little bit more about cycle tracking, ovulation tracking, and our methods of fertility awareness, and helped you understand how you may be able to understand your period and your body more. Reminder, if you're using contraception, you're throwing this off. None of the above applies. You can ask your questions for our fertility-related segments Monday on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD. Some questions will be answered there. Some will be answered in the podcast right here in For Fertility's Sake, our segment. And some will be answered in the newsletter. You can sign up for the newsletter at nataliecrawfordmd.com newsletter. And I also have to just say the courses are back. If you want to learn more about your natural fertility, your lifestyle, what you can do, how to optimize, and all about IVF, please go check out the website to learn more. All right, what can cause an elevated AMH besides PCOS? Really the top things here are going to be PCOS, which is having a high egg count, or just being young and having a high egg count. AMH is made from the cells surrounding all the follicles. We don't have anything that falsely elevates it like we do falsely lowering it. So if your ovaries have been quiescent, they've been quiet for a long time, they haven't been ovulating because you've been pregnant or on hormonal suppression, then you're going to have suppression of the granulosa cells that make AMH. So to be falsely low, but nothing falsely elevates it. You have a high egg count. 
It's either just high eggs or PCOS. Should you be prescribed progesterone after an IUI? Well, not necessarily. It does depend on the reason why you're doing it and what your infertility diagnosis is. A lot of times we do IUIs in couples who just have absolute male factor, meaning they have no sperm. They just need sperm. I don't need to go mess with their cycle. Now, if you're using ovulation induction, if you have PCOS, if we have concern for ovulatory issues, often we will come in and prescribe progesterone afterward. So it's really important that we understand the diagnosis here and we have a talk with our doctor, why or why not? It probably doesn't make a difference in almost everybody, but it is inexpensive and easy. And in the few people that it matters, it's pretty easy to give it to based on their diagnoses. Hi, does letrozole help you ovulate? I have PCOS. So letrozole is a medication that causes your body to lower its estrogen levels, not make less estrogen, but lower them in your bloodstream. So your brain senses a drop in estrogen and therefore sends out a surge of FSH and that FSH is going to drive egg growth. Your egg should grow, make estrogen and get to the ovulation. This can help with some people with PCOS, but not everybody because it's an indirect mechanism. The brain has to sense if you have enough drop in estrogen to let it have FSH sent out. So there's different doses and sometimes you have to work your way up and some people are truly refractory. They don't respond to any dose. So it's not a perfect system, but it can help. It's not going to work for people with hypothalamic amenorrhea who need their brain to be turned on to work. It's not going to. And it can be helpful for people with a luteal phase defect if we think under the mentality that if you have better eggs or a better follicle, you'll have a better corpus luteum and then make better progesterone. I've used ovulation induction alone without progesterone for people who I'm concerned about their ovulatory issues. All right, and our last question is, do OPKs work as well if you have PCOS? So as I already said, there are some limitations. I still recommend if you have irregularly regular or mildly irregular cycles, you can try them if you have PCO, but you want to have your eyes open to what the issues are. Are you getting false positives that don't make sense? Are you getting constant highs and no peak? Are you tracking your cycles in another way and does it make sense? Can it be helpful? It can if your cycles are irregular, knowing when you're actually ovulating, if you are somebody who can get a true positive value. All right, friends. Well, thank you so much for all your love and support on the As Woman podcast. Remember that Monday on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, you can ask questions. We also have live episodes, so you can call in and leave your questions. You also can follow along on YouTube, Natalie Crawford MD. We've got a great community, little shorter, smaller tidbits of information over there. Bye, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman.